Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Acts, the 26th chapter, where my Bible is open to, and this would be an opportune time for you to be getting a Bible open to Acts chapter 26 as well. Let's all be looking and reading and thinking about the Scriptures together for these next few minutes as we open up the Word of the Lord. As you're turning to Acts chapter 26, let me echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning, and especially if you are a guest with us, we are just delighted that you've come to be with us. Appreciate it so very much that you've come to worship with us here on this first day of the week. You honor us with your presence, and we hope and trust that we are helping you to worship the Lord uh, as we seek to do that in spirit and in truth. It is great to be back home. I bring you greetings from the Mill Road Church of Christ up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Great brothers and sisters up there, and uh, they just reminded me so much of, of, of the folks here uh, in a lot of different ways. And so I felt at home up there, but it's just not actually the same as being at home. And there's really no place that I'd rather be than right here with my brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. We have been working this year through our preaching theme for 2017 on taking sin seriously. And we've been coming at that from a number of different angles. We've talked about specific sins that maybe don't always get a whole lot of of airtime, if you will, and focusing on those. The last couple of months have been trying to kind of get us looking in the direction of how we overcome sin, this constant battle that we are in. Last month specifically, we talked about confessing our sin to God, what all is involved in that. I need to ratchet up the tension another level this month as we talk about repentance, and I want to give you fair warning, I have found, as I kind of completed this lesson and was going over it, I found this to be a very challenging sermon in some different directions. And I am this morning, I am going to challenge your thinking, and I am going to press you very, very hard to adopt a much more serious, I'm going to hope you're already serious about it, but a much more serious attitude and approach toward repentance in your own life. Read with me then, in Acts chapter 26, as Paul is recounting the story of his own conversion, he says in verse 19, in Acts 26 and verse 19, he says, O King Agrippa, therefore I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping... With repentance. The story is told of a man who lived in Holland back during the 1950s. And he was sitting in church one day as the preacher preached a sermon about repentance. Overcome with guilt listening to that sermon. After services was over, he came outside and he went to the preacher and he was just weeping and just was distraught. And he said, preacher, I just, I feel so Guilty. I've just done something just so terrible and just so bad in my past and, and it's just been bothering me for years. The preacher said, well friend, what exactly is it that's bothering you? And the man said, well, back during World War II, whenever the Nazis invaded our country and they were occupying our country, there was a Jewish man who lived next door to me. And so I brought him into my home to keep him safe. And I I put him up in my attic to live in the attic of my home. And so the preacher asked, well, I guess then maybe you feel guilty because you lied whenever the Nazis came to your house and they asked for uh, any Jewish people that might be there. 
And the man said, no, I, I, actually, felt, I actually felt justified in doing that. What's been bothering me is that I really needed the money, and so I've been charging the guy rent all these years. And the preacher said, well, you know, that's probably not the best moment of your life. That's probably not the proudest thing you've ever did. But, you know, I'm sure that you've fed him and you've taken care of him. I mean, after all, you put your own life on the line. That was a big risk there. And so, all things considered, it seems like you, seems like you did the right thing. You shouldn't, shouldn't beat yourself up too bad about that and trying to help out that Jewish man during that time of war. The man kind of started to perk up a little bit and began to wipe the tears away from his eyes. And he said, yeah, I do feel a little bit better. Thanks for talking to me. Let me ask you just one more question. And the preacher said, okay, what is it? And the man said, well, do I have to tell him that the war is over now? <clears throat> now, that's a humorous and it is a made-up story, I'm told. But I do think that that little story, it well illustrates... The fact that we, much like the man in that story, we oftentimes have some very wrong ideas about repentance. That we just don't always get what it means to repent. Sometimes we think that merely admitting our sins and admitting my fault, that that is the same as repentance. But it's not. It's a start. But that is a futile start if that confession is not then followed by genuine repentance. And what exactly is repentance? That's a thoroughly biblical word. We've heard that word already uttered a couple times just in the prayer a moment ago. Well, I think Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 gives us a pretty good starting point, doesn't it? Gives us a pretty good definition right there that repentance is a turning away from sin and then it is also a turning to God. It is that change of mind that then leads to a change of life and actions. That is, it's that 180 degree turnaround of thoughts and actions that are then going to be visible. They are going to be evident in my, in my life and in my deeds. And I preach that. I preach that quite regularly. I preach that all the time. In fact, there's probably not very many sermons that I preach where I don't say something about repentance in them. When I have the Bible drill with the kids and we're talking about repentance, I use that illustration right there. I throw that U-turn sign up on the screen to typify that turnaround, that idea. And the kids get it. They understand. That's repentance. I think, I think we understand what repentance is kind of on an intellectual level. We can give a definition of what it means. Yet I am afraid that we sometimes we allow some false ideas to kind of creep in. And they start to kind of bleed over and they end up distorting how it is that we think about repentance. I believe the devil is very crafty in that way. The devil has convinced us to believe some, some fables, to believe some myths about repentance. And this morning what I want to do is I want to just expose those myths. I want to just shine a light, the light of Scripture on those wrong ideas so that none of us None of us would leave here thinking that we have repented when in actuality it may be that we have not actually repented. And so for these next few minutes what I'd like to do is I'd like to set before you five myths about repentance. And as we kind of work through these five ideas, you may come to realize that, well, I haven't been duped by all five of these things and that might be true. 
But I can just about guarantee you there's going to be at least one thing on this list that's going to just hit you square between the eyes. In fact, as I was studying preparing for this lesson, there was a couple of these things. And I'll tell you, they just hit me really, really hard. As I thought deeper about what the Scriptures teach about repentance and how I'm pretty sure I've been coaxed into believing some of these myths. Five myths that need to be exposed so that when we sin, and we will, we want to be able to truly repent and find forgiveness. Myth number one. Myth number one is the belief... That sorrow equals repentance. That as long as we are sorry, and as long as we are sorrowful for our sins, that that's pretty much the same as repenting. Here I did this bad thing. Well, I then shed some holy tears about that. I've repented. And that is a very common kind of thinking. That's a very common thought. Because usually whenever we weep over the bad things that we've done, when we're done weeping, once we've kind of got that out of our system, we, we usually tend to feel better. And so the thinking is, is that, well, if I feel better, then that must mean that I've repented. Now, let me say right here before I move any further. I do wish that God's people wept more over sin. I wish that during sermons, whenever we talk about how sin hurts and affects our God, how sin hurts and it affects Jesus, I wish that we were moved to tears more often. You know, you may argue that this is a little bit extreme, but I've read that in the early days of the Restoration Movement, that people wept and they wailed out loud as those men stood in those pulpits and they preached convicting sermons that convicted people of their sin and of their error. We ought to feel sorrow. We ought to feel broken and contrite over the damage that sin does to our God, to others, and yes, even to ourselves. You know, there's a reason that a lot of churches, we don't have it here, but maybe it ought to be a good practice to start. There's a lot of churches, they'll actually have a box of Kleenex, a box of tissues right there on the front pew. You want to know why? Because when someone comes forward, usually, usually they're going to be crying. They're going to be sorrowful. They're going to be weeping. And they're looking for forgiveness. And I'm not talking about some kind of manufactured tears. I'm not talking about faking it this morning. I'm talking about being legitimately heartbroken and sorrowful over our sins. Yet even as I say that, I need you to listen to me very carefully. If you think that having some sorrow and shedding some tears, that that is the same thing as repenting, then you are mistaken. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Bible bears this out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I need you to pay very careful attention to the wording of this passage. I think Paul is very intentional in choosing his words here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is verse 9. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 9, Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved or made sorrowful, but because you were grieved into repenting. I like the New American Standard. It says that you were sorrowful to the point of repentance. That is, it's not all about the fact that you cried. Hey, that's good that you cried over your sin. But that sorrow is bringing you, it has brought you to the point of repentance, Paul says. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10 now. For godly grief produces 
a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, notice this, whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. Did you catch that at the end of verse 10? That there is such a thing as a sorrow that produces death. And I believe that's talking about the tears that are shed, but then they dry very, very quickly because there's no real commitment to change. There's no actual repentance going on. Parents, have you maybe ever experienced that kind of sorrow and those kinds of tears from your children before? Here your child misbehaves, so you correct them and maybe that's painful for them and so they come crying. Let me ask you, is that always enough? The fact that they cried, got in trouble for what they did and they cried about that, is that always enough? Well, I made them cry, so I guess they're going to straighten up and do what's right. Well, that's not necessarily always the case. It's not always going to work that way. And I'm afraid that sometimes, whenever a Christian comes forward and they acknowledge sin, and we see those tears of sorrow streaming down their face, we kind of just say in our minds, see, see those tears they're shedding? That's, that's the sign that they've repented. That's how I know that they've repented, because they're crying. Well, not necessarily. Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance. It precedes the repenting. Sorrow itself is not repentance. In fact, I want you to think about this. You can be sorry for your sins. You can be sorry for the bad things you've done and still not repent. You understand that? Don't believe me? How about a couple of examples? Look in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 27, here's a man in Matthew chapter 27 who was sorry for what he had done. And I'm going to suggest to you that he was more sorry then I would guess just about anybody could possibly be sorry for doing something wrong. But in Matthew chapter 27, we find that though he is sorry, we don't have any evidence that he actually repented. And the man that I'm referring to in Matthew 27 is Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus. In Matthew 27, look in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, the ESV says. I think most other translations say he felt remorse, and I imagine he did. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Verse 5, Then throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now folks, that sorrow, that guy felt real remorse. And we might read that and we might be inclined, at least on first pass, to say, you know, poor Judas. I mean, he felt so bad that he went out and he hung himself. Just couldn't think of what to do with himself. So he went out and killed himself. I'm going to guess that God forgave him because God saw that he was so sorrowful. Actually, that's not the case. The Bible says in John chapter 17 that Judas is a son of perdition. Jesus calls him that. He was sorrowful, but the Bible says Judas didn't repent. And you know what? That's not just true of Judas. The Bible says the same thing about Esau. Would you find Hebrews 12? In Hebrews chapter 12, Esau is cited by the Hebrew writer as really a very cautionary tale. In Hebrews chapter 12, look in verse 17. In Hebrews 12 verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he, that's Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I don't profess to know everything about that verse, but it is clear to me 
that Esau shed a lot of tears. One translation actually says he shed tears diligently. He shed many tears over losing his father's blessing to him, but it did not, the Hebrew writer says, it did not bring about repentance. And what I want us to see from all of that is that there is a difference between sorrow and repentance. Do not assume that just because you cried, that that means that you repented. It may just mean that you were sorry that you got caught. It may mean that you were sorry that you had to reap the consequences of your sin. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, according to Paul, is when you are sorry for sinning. And that sorrow then leads to that change of mind, that change of action, change of conduct. That's repentance. Do not ever equate sorrow with actual repentance. Which brings me to myth number two. And that is the idea and the mistaken thinking that self-preservation is repentance. That is, I'm going to do and I'm going to repent just enough in order to preserve myself, just enough in order to keep on being what I want to be and keep on doing what I really want to do. Uh, Maybe to phrase all of that a different way. I'll admit some guilt, I'll humble myself a little bit, I'll correct my ways, but only as much as it benefits me. Uh, The consummate example of that in the Bible, I believe, is King Ahab. Would you go in your Old Testament, please? Look in 1 Kings 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab is just notorious in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 21, after he has uh, brought about the death, he's murdered Nabal. And after he has been confronted by the prophet Elijah, and he's been told of what's going to happen to you, Ahab, notice what's said there in 1 Kings 21, beginning in verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. There's nobody like him. Verse 26, he acted very abominably, going after the idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27, when Ahab heard those words the words of condemnation that Elijah had spoke, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth on his flesh. He fasted. He lay in sackcloth and he went about dejectedly. Hey, looking good for Ahab here. That seems like good things to do. That seems to be showing some signs of some of that sorrow, fasting, sackcloth, all of that kind of stuff. Verse 29, or verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, verse 29, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. Hey, what about that? Now we might be ready to say, well looky there, looks like Ahab repented. Ahab has repented. God is relenting from the disaster that he said he was going to bring upon him. God totally forgave him. Everything is square between God and Ahab. Yet I would have you notice the very remainder of that verse, verse 29. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And then you go right into chapter 22, and what do you read in chapter 22? In chapter 22, you find that Ahab is right back to his old ways. He's right back into idol worship and all of the things that he was notorious for. Ahab didn't really change. This was just about self-preservation in the moment. I want to promise God that I'm going to do better right now in order to save my hide. And that is what is sometimes referred to, I heard an older preacher say this uh, not that long ago, this is what is referred to as foxhole religion. You ever heard that phrase before? Foxhole religion? What's a foxhole? If you think about in wartime, 
Go back. I mentioned World War II earlier. Imagine you're in World War II and you are in a very dangerous area. There's lots of gunfire. And so what would you do to protect yourself, to preserve yourself? Well, one of the things that you could do is you could dig a foxhole. That is, you just start digging in the ground. You dig out maybe like kind of a little shallow hole. It's really no more than just kind of an indention in the ground. And you hunker down in that thing and you just hope You hope that all the bombs and the bullets that are flying around, you just hope that none of that's going to hit you. And as a result, sometimes people would be down in that foxhole, and what would happen is people who were completely not religious, people who maybe were atheists in that moment, they suddenly become very religious. They suddenly start crying out to God, God, please save me. God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I promise I'll I'll serve you. I'll go to church. I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know what? That doesn't just happen in foxholes. I was talking with a fellow preacher recently about a man that he had went to visit in the hospital. And this man was about to undergo a very, very serious surgery. It was kind of a life-threatening surgery as much as it was a life-saving surgery. But there was a real danger there that he actually could die in the middle of the procedure. And the man was not a Christian. His wife was, but he wasn't a Christian. And so he told the preacher, he spoke to him before he went into the, to the surgery room. He's just weeping and bawling. He said, preacher, if I get through this, I promise I will study the Bible with you and I promise I will give the Lord my life. And so he said, just please, just pray for me that I'll be able to get through this. And so the preacher did. He prayed for him. That went back to the congregation. The whole rest of the congregation was praying for that man that he would make it through it. And guess what? He did. Made it through the surgery. Everything was okay. Within a matter of days, he was back home. And then within a matter of just a couple of weeks, he was pretty much back to 100% health. What my preacher friend told me was, that was five years ago. And in five years' time, that man has not saw through that promise about studying the Bible. And as best he can tell, in that five years, he has not followed through with that promise to give his life to the Lord if the Lord would just allow him to live. That fella, like so many others, was really only interested in repenting so long as it benefited him. And once he then got the benefit out of that, then he really wasn't interested in repenting anymore. Folks, that ain't repentance. And if you think that just because you made some, you made some very sincere promises to God, Promises that were contingent upon God doing some things for you. God was going to act in your favor in some way. If you think that that constitutes repentance, then you need to rethink your drink. Because that ain't repentance. Repentance is not about changing just enough. I'll make just enough changes in my life so that I'll be able to kind of shark deal God out of some blessings and out of some favors. No. Repentance is about making a complete Total change. That 180 degree turnaround where we follow through on all of those promises and we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As John the Baptist said in Matthew 3 and in verse 8. This idea that self-preservation works as repentance, that is absolutely a myth. Just like myth number 3. And that is the thinking that self-justification and repentance can somehow coexist. You cannot, I want to say this very emphatically, you cannot come to the Lord in repentance while justifying yourself and justifying your actions. You just can't do that. It's just not possible. 
That those things just cannot coexist whatsoever. Yet even as I say that, people have been trying to do that for a very, very long time. The prime example of that in the Bible, in my opinion, would be King Saul. Would you find 1 Samuel 15, please? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll remember there that Saul is instructed by God to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. God really is as clear as He could be about that. Go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Saul does not. And so God then sends His prophet Samuel to go and confront Saul about that. That's verse 19. 1 Samuel 15 verse 19. Samuel asks, hey, why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? Why didn't you obey God's instructions? Then look at verse 20 what Saul says. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Verse 21. But the people, but the people, they took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In the very next couple of verses, Samuel says to Saul, Saul, I'm sorry, buddy, but that excuse doesn't fly here. That's not going to cut it. And so Saul continues to talk and continues to dig himself into an even deeper hole. Verse 20, uh, verse 24 now. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Hey, that's what we want to hear. I have sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Drop down to verse 30. He said again, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Did you notice that in those verses that we just read, three different times Saul tries to justify himself while repenting. He said, first of all, I did obey God, but but the people. Then he says, I have sinned, but but it was only because I feared the people. And then he says again, I have sinned, but... But would you at least honor me in front of the people before you go? Three times Saul inserts into his sorrow that word, but. Maybe not literally three times, but that is what he does here. You can just kind of interject that word because. You could put a but there. And then even in verse 30, instead of the word yet, you could put the word but there as well. Yeah, I messed up, but... What Saul is seeking to do is to justify himself. And guess what? That does not work at all with God. Now, it's real easy for me to stand up here and pick on Saul because I think he's just a miserable failure of a king. But what about us? We ever do that? Husbands, you ever say to your wife, Honey, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I raised my voice and I I said those things to you that I, I just should not have said. But... But you know how I get when I get angry. Or ladies, you ever said this to your husband? Honey, I am so sorry for being irritable and rude when you came in the door from work, but but I had a really bad headache today. And so that's why I took all that out on you. The moment that you put that word but at the end of an apology, I want to suggest to you that that completely negates the apology And it completely negates any repentance that was going on there. Because what it says is it says, I am justified in what I am doing here. 
I am just, I did that and I'm justified for doing it. That's what Saul tried to do. And guess what? The Lord was not having any of that. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a, it's kind of a scandal with the Miss America pageant with, uh, it was Miss New Jersey, I remember. And there were some lewd photos of her that apparently some people in the press had got, some photos that she had taken uh, sometime prior. And they were reporting on it, and they were kind of threatening to put out more photos uh, about Miss New Jersey. And so she gave an interview about that to kind of cut it off at the pass. And she conceded that those photos, and this is her quote, she said those photos were not in a ladylike manner. Now... In my opinion, that was kind of a that was kind of a weak and kind of a light way of, of putting that. But but I do think that in those words, she was trying to say, okay, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But then the very next words out of her mouth in that interview, that was not in a ladylike manner. But I'm not a robot. I'm only human, she said. You see? You see, that's the very same thing that Saul did. Instead of just acknowledging the wrong, instead of just taking ownership of what I've done, no, I did wrong, but dot, dot, dot. That, that's not repentance. As soon as we start justifying, as soon as we start saying, I'm sorry, Lord, but, but I had a really bad day at work. I'm sorry, Lord, but, but I'm under so much pressure. I'm sorry, Lord, but I'm only human. Listen, you cannot do that and repent. Self-justification and repentance, they are incompatible. You try that with God and you're going to utterly fail in the same way that Saul failed. In fact, I believe the reason that the Bible goes to such great lengths to show us what a failure Saul was, how badly he messed this up, is so that we would appreciate his successor, David, and how well he got it right. In fact, if you're still here in Samuel, would you jump over to 2 Samuel? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you know it well. In fact, if you're a member here, we studied it during VBS this past summer. After David had committed just really just a number of horrible sins, he is confronted in chapter 12 by Nathan the prophet, and he is just kind of called out on the carpet for what he had done. And after hearing all of that that Nathan had to say, verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. There's no but, and then some excuse. There's no rationalization. There's no justification on David's part. There is simply an acknowledgement of guilt and a heart that was determined to do what was right. And we see even further evidence of that when you read Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, both of which David wrote during this same period of time. There was no attempt on David's part to try to avoid taking responsibility for his sin. David owned it. That is what repentance requires of us. To fully own our sin and then forsake it, not meagerly attempt to justify it. That's a myth. Myth number four about repentance. And that is the idea that repentance can be selective. I said that there were some of these that really hit me hard. And this is the one that probably hit me the hardest. The idea that I can just kind of select what I'm going to repent of. I'm going to repent of this right now, but not these things over here. I'll just kind of pick and choose which sins that I'm going to repent of right now. Can I just tell you the, the, really just the fundamental problem with that? The problem with that is that 
All of our sins add up. It all just adds up. It's never really just one thing, is it? Maybe in some occasions, maybe it is just one thing. But invariably, that one thing that we think we're repenting of, usually it's a culmination of several different things. Isn't that usually the case? Several things that preceded the one big thing. And as a result, we're asking God to forgive us of this one sin when in reality, we're not doing anything about all of the other sins that led up to it. For example, imagine a young man, young Christian man, who gets arrested for underage drinking. And so what happens? Well, the next Sunday at church service, that young man, he comes forward during the invitation song. And he publicly wants to acknowledge and wants to publicly repent of the fact that he had gotten caught drinking under the influence of alcohol, underage. He says that. He says, I, I got caught drinking. And I'm sorry for doing that. I shouldn't have done that. And I'm just, I'm just sorry for it. And I want God's forgiveness. And I, I want your forgiveness as well. I brought reproach upon the church. And it's all well and good. That's all understandable. But I want you to understand, it's not my goal to want to humiliate anybody. And I certainly wouldn't humiliate someone in that particular circumstance. But it is my goal, just like it is the goal of a doctor, to use the surgical instrument that has been given to me, and to me that is the Word, to use that instrument to extract that which is deadly to the person. And i got to tell you, I'm not really sure that the person who comes forward and says, I got caught drinking and I shouldn't have done that and I'm sorry about that, I'm not really sure that that person has really owned up to what's really going on there. Because you just stop and think about what all is going on there. If you are involved in underage drinking, that means not only are you guilty of underage drinking, but that means that probably somebody had to lie in order for you to get that alcohol. and Maybe that liar was you. You probably as well were around some people that you shouldn't have been around. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Not only that, but you violated the laws of the land. And if you got good Christian parents, that means probably as well, you've probably disobeyed your parents. That also is a sin. You add all those things up. You know, maybe what we ought to be doing is we ought to be seeking to extract all of the things that led up to the underage drinking. Otherwise, what happens is, is it's kind of like just kind of slivering off the, the surface of the melanoma. We're going to kind of scrape off the top millimeter of it. But then we're going to leave the rest of it to infect and poison the body. Or how about this? Imagine maybe a young Christian couple. They're not married, but they are both Christians. And one Sunday morning, we come to find out that the young lady, she's pregnant with child. So she comes forward. In fact, let's just go ahead and throw the boy in there. They both come forward want to acknowledge that they have conceived a child out of wedlock. They're sorry for that. And they're sorrowful about that. And they understand the shame that that's brought on their family and on the local church and all of that kind of stuff. Now listen, I want to say once again, I'm not trying to humiliate anybody. I'm not trying to beat anybody up in that circumstance. But I'm here to say that we need to be able to see what God sees. We need to be able to see all that God sees that's going wrong in that circumstance. And I want you to know, God sees a whole lot more than just somebody who got pregnant out of wedlock. What God sees is God sees premarital sex was taking place there. Fornication. That's a sin. God sees as well whatever lies and deception was going on there that led up to that premarital sex. Lying to the parents about where they were. Lying and covering up about what it is that they were doing. That's a sin. 
God as well sees the lust and the lasciviousness that obviously would have preceded the premarital sex. That's a sin. In fact, God also sees maybe all of those prior encounters when they were sexually active with one another, all of those times that it took place and they didn't get pregnant, they were lucky enough that that didn't happen. God sees that as well. That's a sin. Somebody maybe says, as I'm saying all that, Josh, who in the world are you to go around uh, prosecuting people about that? I'm not prosecuting anybody about it. What I'm simply trying to get us to understand is that repentance is not selective. Repentance is about owning up to all of my sins, not just the last one that I got caught in the middle of. Honestly now, and I've used there just a couple of illustrations that are kind of extreme examples, but this is true of of, of every sin. Many of the sins, if not all of the sins that we commit, they are motivated by what we would sometimes consider small things. They are motivated by what we sometimes would kind of look at as being respectable sins. Like, for example, pride. Think of how many sins, bigger sins that we might think of that were motivated and caused by prideful attitudes. Wow. When's the last time you heard somebody come forward and confess and repent of pride? I've never heard that. We need to be digging a little bit deeper, don't we? Dig deeper than just the surface. Because before adultery, there is love. Before murder, there is anger. Before theft, there is covetousness. The question is, are we repenting of all of those things that are in our lives? And should we just kind of make the assumption that, well, yes, if you repent of the big one, then that means you're just kind of by default repenting of all the others. Really? Can I ask you, where's that in the Bible? Somebody give me a Bible verse about that. Pride, selfishness, greed, lust. Those are the things that often underlie the things that we are repenting of. And I think we need to be more mindful of that. We need to be searching and digging deeper in our hearts so that we can root all of that stuff out. Listen, sexual immorality is wrong, but so is sensuality. And so is dressing immodestly. And so is talking about the human body in a coarse and nasty way. And yes as well, it is wrong for a man to to hit a woman, to abuse a woman, to abuse his wife physically. But what about what about verbal hostility? What about emotional abuse? Are those kind of the things that well, we're kind of okay with those and not nearly as bad as the other. Those are kind of those respectable sins. Listen, a man who's guilty of hitting his wife physically, I guarantee you He is assaulting her verbally and emotionally in those ways too. Are we repenting of that? Or are we just repenting of the one thing that she's wearing a black eye for? Are we repenting of all of our sins? Somebody said, Josh, boy, thinking about all that. All that deep digging that I would have to do within my heart and within my soul. Trying to come clean about all of that. And what is it causing these things? Boy, that sounds difficult. That sounds painful. Yes, it is. And I think God designed it that way. In fact, I believe that that can be so painful that it ends up serving as a very powerful deterrent that we don't ever want to commit those sins ever, ever again. We want them out. We want them gone. We don't ever want them to come back into our lives. Which is kind of, isn't that kind of what repentance is all about anyway? The myth. That repentance is something that we can just pick and choose and be selective about. Ah, 
That's a hard myth, but it is a myth. Fifthly and lastly this morning, I do think that from time to time, we trick ourselves into believing myth number five, and that is the thinking that repentance eliminates all of the consequences of our sins. That if I repent, if I'll turn and if I'll change, if I'll, if I'll do exactly things in the way that, that God says that I ought to do them in His Word, then I will be able to escape all of the, the horrible earthly consequences of what I've done. That is a myth. Actually, let me take that back. Sometimes, sometimes maybe that is true. If I, for example, if I break my neighbor's window, I'm in the backyard and I'm batting around a, a ball with a baseball bat, and I knock a ball through my neighbor's window and break their window, and I go to them and I say, I broke your window. I am so sorry. I was goofing off in the backyard and I just wasn't paying attention and it's my fault and I want to pay for it and I just want you to know I want to take care of it and I want to do what's right. I want to do, make, make restitution if I can. And my neighbor says, ah, don't worry about it. Not that big of a deal. I've got an extra window that I can just throw right in there. Just the fact that you came and came clean about it and talked to me about it, that's just, that, that, that just says a lot. Just don't worry about it. That does happen from time to time where we are the beneficiaries of someone else's mercy. But most of the time, most of the time, even when we are truly penitent, we cannot eliminate all of the consequences of our sins. We alluded earlier to David's sin there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David did repent and God did forgive him. Of that there can be no doubt. But don't you notice in 2 Samuel 12 verse 14, Nathan says, David, you're still going to lose that child that was born to Bathsheba. And he says in verse 10 as well, you're still going to have, you're still going to have a tough time in your family. And in fact, that pain and drama in his family, it would go on for years and years and years and years. You see, the temporal earthly consequences of our sin, it doesn't just magically disappear the moment that we repent. If you commit fornication, young people, you can repent of that. And you can be forgiven of that. And you can still go to heaven. But you know what? You commit fornication, you still may have to deal with the issues of something like a sexually transmitted disease. That's a consequence. God that's not going to automatically just take that away. If you are a habitual liar, you've got a problem with lying, you just tell lies all the time. You can repent of that. You can be forgiven of that. You can go to heaven. But you may still have to do a whole lot of work in rebuilding your reputation, rebuilding your credibility, rebuilding trust in the lives of the people around you. If you commit a crime, you can repent of that. You can be forgiven of that. You can go to heaven. But you may still have to pay a fine. You may still have to go to jail for that. In fact, you may even have to forfeit your own life over that. I know of cases where people became obedient to the gospel while they were on death row. But when their time came, they still had to be executed. Repentance does not get us off the hook. Repentance does not just magically undo the consequences that were set in motion when we committed that sin. God has arranged things so that sin has just a terrible and painful bite back. And Sometimes that bite back, yeah, it's immediate. But other times that bite back, maybe it doesn't happen until later. Maybe much later. Weeks, months, maybe even years down the road. 
Galatians 6 verse 7 sets forth before us a spiritual law that we cannot escape, that you will reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. And so while we should be ever thankful that God gives us, He gives us the opportunity. And he gives us the time. He is patient and He is long-suffering. He gives us the occasion to repent, to receive forgiveness and for us to then be saved eternally. God gives us that opportunity. We should not be surprised if and when we suffer the earthly consequences of our sin. To think that that somehow could not happen to me, that is to believe a myth. Repentance is serious business. I hope we knew that before we even got here today. It is serious business because sin is serious business. And it is way too important of a matter, repentance is, for us to have false and wrong ideas about that, and we end up just messing it all up and getting it all wrong. We must not and we cannot allow that to happen in our lives. We must be committed, Acts 26.20, to repent and turn to God and perform deeds consistent with repentance every single day. The good news is that with the help of God and by His providence through His different means of helping us, whether that be through His Word or whether that be through His people or some other means, God will help us to do just that so that we can then know the calm assurance that comes from knowing I have repented and I have been forgiven by God. What about you right now? Is there something that you need to repent of? The invitation song that we're about to be led in in just a moment, it's going to give all of us an opportunity, it's going to give us a couple of minutes at least, to examine our lives, hopefully very honestly and very carefully, and think about and try to figure out where the weak spot is. Brother or sister, let me just say first of you, if there is something that you need to take care of and it's something you just need to take care of between you and God, do that. Do it, do it immediately. Confess that to God. Repent of that. Change that right now. And if there's some of that confessing and some of that repenting that needs to take place, maybe in kind of a public way, that you need to make that known to your brothers and sisters. And furthermore, you want to call upon your brothers and sisters, your spiritual family here, to encourage you and help you and to make that repentance stick, to perform those deeds in keeping with repentance, then we stand ready to assist you. That's what part of this invitation song is about. It's about giving you the chance to walk down that aisle and say, I need your prayers. I need your help. I need your encouragement. If you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, if you're of an age of accountability, you need to repent. You absolutely need to repent. Acts 2.38 says that you need to repent and then you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And all things are ready for that to happen today. There's water back there. Rick told me it's not maybe as warm as it sometimes is, but it'll suffice. There's water back here, garments back here, myself and other people who are ready to help you to become a Christian today. All of your sins will be washed away and you can come up out of that water something entirely new, a Christian You can begin serving the Lord. You can begin helping all the rest of us to serve God, to repent, to be devoted to Him daily. If there's anybody who's subject to heaven's invitation, would you seize upon this moment right now? Make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.